0: All righty, good morning, story fam. How are we doing today? Everybody's good. Nice mustache right here up front. I like it. like it a lot, Scott. Hope y'all are doing good. And over at our Timber Grove campus as well, I hope y'all are doing great and over in the Heights. We love you and we're so grateful that you're a part of the story today. And those of y'all joining us online, wherever you are in the world, you're a part of us. And so it's really an honor to welcome you here. Now, if it's your first time here or at Timber Grove or online, just know what an honor it is, really, truly. We're grateful um, because time is short and weekends are shorter and it's uh it's a sacrifice to come into a church. There's a hundred other things you could probably be doing with this time, and so we hope that we can honor that time by providing a space where you can really settle in and ask questions, the the pressing questions on your mind, on your heart questions about God and religion and Jesus and everything, because there's no question that's out of bounds here. That's why the story exists. And so if you got more questions and answers about religion, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope today's message uh, resonates with you. I um, wanted to tell you just real quickly about something that is near to my heart and always has been since we started this story. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel that it's important for people that, that claim to follow him to to show it by the things that we do and the people that we take care of. In, particu- in particular, he names the prisoners, those on the inside of our prisons and those who are incarcerated. And we've always had, a, 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 for most of our time uh, together at the story, we've had a ministry called the Jubilee Prison Ministry that men um, on some weekends and women on others uh, go and, uh, and minister to folks on the inside of a nearby um, unit, right? We've got one of these coming up in September, uh, the 23rd to the 25th for men, Um, and guys, I can't tell you what an impactful thing this is. Not for you to go and make an impact on somebody else. You don't have to be equipped to do that. You're going to be the one who's impacted, Uh, even if you aren't sure, especially if you're not sure about everything we say up here in church. Like, This is the best way to break free from what I call churchianity, which is just like religious-based, sort of uh, behavior-based, be-a-good-little-boy-and-girl-based kind of religion. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to revolutionize your life, and this is one of the ways I've seen this happen in the lives of men. So I know it's a sacrifice. It's a whole weekend, but this is your soul we're talking about. Your soul is worth a weekend and uh, some guys are like, but I don't want to sleep in a prison. Look, if you don't, like, break the law while you're there, you go to the hotel at night, like, you don't have to sleep in the prison, and and it's kind of posh, really. You feel probably a little guilty about it, and and you, you eat good when you're there, and you sit around tables with guys that come from different walks of life, and you ask the deepest questions, and, and you search the Bible for the answers, and just a great time. Nathan Bonas is who used to be our worship leader here, is leading worship the whole weekend. There's all kinds of reasons why. You should do this this time around. So, um, the way to do this is to visit the website on the screen right now, which is jubileeprisonministry.org. You want to make sure and click on that uh, web on that page to click the weekend called String Fellow One. String Fellow is the unit we're going to in September. Uh, String Fellow One is the weekend uh, that the stories men are doing. So, guys, step up! It's time. You know it. I know it. So, hope you can uh, uh, jump in this week. This is the last week to sign up for that. All right. Cool. So I'm um, going to get into a message now and, and explain a little bit about what we're going to be talking about after I tell you a story first. I wanted to tell you the story. I was at a men's retreat for most of this week or for the last part of the week at, uh, at a ranch outside of town and had a lot of time to reflect. And I was reflecting back on things that have happened to me. And as we get ready to talk about today's theme, which is conflict, I thought about a conflict that has always sort of stuck with me. So uh, when I was 23 or 24, Gio and I were both 23 or 24. We lived in Kansas City. We were going to seminary. We were appointed as student pastors of a tiny United Methodist church in one of Kansas City's most challenged um, neighborhoods. It was just all kinds of needs in this neighborhood. And, And the church members of that church we were serving had all moved out to other suburban areas. And nobody who went to that church lived in that neighborhood except for one or two people, but there was nothing going on at the church for the people who were struggling. And so Gio and I just had this entrepreneurial spirit, big surprise, I know, but we even back then had this entrepreneurial spirit to start something. And so we started uh, uh, after-school ministry, a place for kids to go and be safe and do their homework and get some snacks, you know, instead of going home and uh, whatever uh, they were normally used to. So uh, they would come to the church, but as with any ministry, you need money to do this, right? So every time we needed money to do this ministry or any ministry at that church, we had to go and beg Bernice for a check, all right? So Bernice was the 80-something-year-old treasurer of this church who kept the checkbook like under several layers of tight security, like not for good reasons, just to be mean about it, I think. Uh, Bernice, I'm sure, was perfectly pleasant to most people, but Bernice hated me. And it was really a surprise to me because I'm a preacher's kid, and I've always done pretty well with old people. Like it's a, th- it's a preacher's kid skill because you get used to it early in life, and I always kind of rocked it with a room full of old people, but Bernice was on to me, man. She hated me. And I didn't understand why. And every time I went to her house to get a check, it was like a battle ensuing. And I dreaded it. One time I was at her house, and I just decided, I'm going I'm to figure this out. I'm going for it. I'm just going to go in and ask the tough question. So I said, Bernice, I can't help feeling like you've got a problem with me. If I'm wrong, just tell me. And, and I, I would just love to know. Are you mad at me about something? And she was not taken aback by my question at all. I expected her to sort of be on her heels. It was like she'd been waiting for me to ask. <laughs> she didn't miss a beat. She didn't hesitate. She was like, no, you're not wrong. I do have a problem with you. It's like, okay. All right. So let's get right to it, Bernice. Uh, what is it? What's going on? What is it about me that bothers you so much? Why have you never accepted me in, as a friend, as a pastor, etc.? And she said to me, Eric, I've known men like you my whole life. I know what you do behind closed doors. I know who you become. And my first thought, I'm 23 or 24, y'all, if you know my testimony, you know I wasn't living my best life at that point. And my first thought was like, oh my gosh, what does Bernice know? Because <laughs> when you're living guilty, man, it's, uh, it, who's on to me, you know? But then I decided my only play here is to call her bluff, right? So I said, Bernice, what are you talking about? You don't even know me. And she said, I've seen men like you, big tall men like you with cute, sweet wives like yours, and you put up a front when you're around people, but behind closed doors at home, you get there and push her around. I know men like you. Y'all. Look, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've done a lot of things wrong. I still do a lot of things wrong, but I have never in 23 years of marriage even considered getting remotely violent with my wife. It's an abomination to me. I can't even imagine it. And I'm scared of her. I wouldn't. (laughs) But, But anyway... It's still still something I... It's a bridge I wouldn't cross. It's just not how I was raised. I just actually despise men that do that kind of thing. And as I was was explaining that sort of my heart to Bernice, I could tell it was getting through to her. Like the sincerity in my voice was coming through because her face was changing as I was talking from like an angry scowl to like regretful and remorseful. And by the time I was done, she was apologizing to me. And she said, Eric, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Eric. I'm not really... It's not about you, she said. It's been 10 years since I lost my Bob, and I miss him. And I guess when I see you and Gio together, it reminds me of Bob and me. Now, my heart was touched. It was one of those pastor's dilemmas, to be honest with you, because there were spiritual things I knew I should say and fleshly things I also wanted to say. You know, I kind of wanted to say, why do you miss a guy who apparently used to push you around? And I was still a little angry about being equated with Bob, given how she had gotten to that, like, conclusion about me based on her apparent experiences with Bob. But I just I sort of did what they trained me to do at seminary, right? I just sort of said the pastor thing. I was like, Bob sounds like he was an amazing man. And I hope one day that I get to meet him in heaven. And Bernice sat and thought for a second. She goes, hmm, I don't know about that. I guess we'll see. And y'all, to this day, 20 plus years later, I don't know whether Bernice was doubting Bob's salvation or mine or both. I don't know, Bernice. I guess we'll see. All right, one day we'll see. Now, the reason that that particular story came flooding back to my mind this week is because I've been preparing to talk about conflict And we always find ourselves getting caught up in conflicts. It's just human to get caught up in conflicts. And I don't mean like conflicts with faraway people and political stuff. I actually mean interpersonal, close to home, under your own roof kind of conflicts or in your church like conflicts. Why do we have these conflicts? Well, we're going to talk about today. One of the reasons we have these conflicts is our inability or our unwillingness to distinguish between the skirmishes we have on the surface and the war going on underneath. And if we can't draw the line between the war going on underneath the surface, in our hearts, and the skirmishes we engage in in our relationships, then we are at risk of losing both the skirmish and the war. And on the other hand, if we can learn to distinguish between the skirmishes and the war, we can win the war and avoid the skirmishes. Avoid them in a healthy way. Healing our relationships, mending the broken fences, and, and really leading healthier uh, relationships. And so that's what's at stake today, all right? This is message number five in a six week series on the book of James. James is the half brother of Jesus uh, who wrote this letter found in the, uh, toward the end of the New Testament. And if you've been around for the last four weeks, you know that James has a certain style. He's bold, he's brash, he's in your face, he's offensive, and that's by design. He wants to offend you and make you uncomfortable. And he's made all of us uncomfortable for the last four weeks. And he's going to do the same thing to us today. You'll see what I mean uh, in just a moment, all right? So what James is going to give us today is three things. He's going to give us a sense of the conflict we're in. He's going to define the conflict. And then he's going to help us to see the real cause of the conflict. And then he's going to show us the cure. So we're going to talk about the conflicts we're in, the cause of those conflicts, and the cure for the conflicts in our relationships. All right, so James chapter 4, if you're joining us here, you can grab a Bible in front of you. I think y'all have Bibles in front of you at uh, Timber Grove as well. And if you're online, um, maybe you have a Bible with you, or if you have a Bible app, you can open that. Or if you're just unfamiliar with the Bible or unsure about, you know, opening up a, a book, you can just follow along with me today, and, uh, and uh, the words will be on the screen. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 is where we'll begin, as he, as he identifies our conflict. Okay, so what causes fights, he asks in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but don't have, so you kill. He's being metaphorical there, right? He's like, you get violent in your thoughts at least, in your covetousness. He says, you covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask God, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So just like he has in the last couple of weeks, James starts this passage with a question. And it's a question that is a rhetorical device. What he's doing here is setting us up because where does your mind go when someone asks you, hey, what's the cause of your conflicts? Who is the cause of your fights? what does your mind do? If you're anything like me, you immediately begin the blame game. You begin to point fingers. You look outside of yourself and say, who causes my conflict? They do. He does. She does. My wife does. My husband does. My kids do. My parents do. My pastor does. My church does. Whatever. Or maybe maybe you take it a step further if you're being discipled by MSNBC or Fox News and you're, you're labeling whole groups of people as the source and real problem that lead to your uh, conflicts. You know, the liberals, the conservatives, the, the feminists, the Christian right, the Whatever, it's like, you you know the thing. And both of them say the other side's toxic, and both of them blame the other side for all their problems. And that's just human nature when we are living in the flesh and unaware that there's a, a deeper war that is being waged within us. But when we're posed that question, who causes your problems? What causes your problems? Easy, them, they do. And then after James sets us up and gets us thinking along those lines, he lowers the boom on us. Because the second question that he asks is meant to be uh, sort of rhetorical, but really it's like a a, a gut punch. He says, don't your conflicts really arise? Don't they really arise from the battle that's raging within you? Within you? So he set us up, got us thinking about them, 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 him, her, them, et cetera. And then he's like, doesn't it really start with you, within you? And then he goes on to say, the way that you know it starts within you, the way that you can be sure that your fractured relationships begin with a fractured heart is by the things that you desire. Your desires reveal your heart's condition. Remember that today. Your desires reveal your heart's true condition. And he says, you go around envying what other people have, coveting what other people have, things you don't have, and you make it all about the things you don't have. Instead of being grateful for what you do have, instead of just loving people even if they have more than you and being happy for them and the way that they're being blessed or whatever, it's like you turn it into this game. Think about a, a woman, for example, who's watched all of her friends get married and find husbands. And this isn't always the case, and this is just a hypothetical, right? This isn't always the case. But a woman who watches all of her friends get married and who has dreamed her whole life about being married can very Easily begin to wrap her whole life, including her prayer life, around this one thing she thinks she wants, which is a husband like they have. And if she wants it long enough, she'll start to think she doesn't just want it, she deserves it and she needs it. And why do they have it and not me? And so then her relationships with the women who have husbands begin to rupture. They begin to, to be fragmented because of the fragmentation and the rupture in her own heart. You see how this works? And suddenly she begins to confuse what she thinks she wants, a husband, with a deeper want to layer beneath a husband. What she really wants is not a husband. Half the women who have husbands want what she has. No husband. <laughs> and, and ability to do what she wants and go on a date once in a while with a guy that doesn't smell like Cheetos. That'd be great. like that. You know, it's like we get caught up in the surface level things. But what she really wants is to be loved, to be wanted, to be cherished, to be honored, to not be alone, to have a family, to have a future. That's what she wants. And there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But when you boil your life and your desires and your prayer life around getting and having and deserving a husband, you turn God into some kind of a cosmic vending machine who refuses to put the candy out even though you put the quarter in how many times? Instead of saying, God, I'm lonely. I don't want to be alone. God, fill this void in my heart. God, show me what it means to have a family. Show me what it means to have security. If that was the prayer of that woman's heart, her whole life would change. Because she would be leaving it up to God and his will to determine what family, community mean to her. And how he fulfills that for her. It might be a husband. It might be something else. But we end up directing God's steps for him when we boil him down like that into some kind of genie in a bottle. And men do it, too. It's not like there's only one brand of person that does this. All of us do it in different ways. Think of a man whose friends are richer than him. As a pastor in this part of town, I can relate, (laughs) okay? (laughs) think of a friend, a, a guy whose friends are richer who have more than him, walking around thinking, why don't I have, why can't I give my family, my kids, what?" Those guys give their family their kids. Why, why don't I have more money? Why don't I have more of that power? You know, it's like, it's not really what you want. It's not re- it comes with all kinds of strings attached, and half the men who have more money than you probably wish they could be freed from a lot of the strings that come attached with it. So listen, it's not really about the thing, but when you make it about the surface thing, you lose what's really happening beneath the surface, which is this war. Because what you really want isn't the money. What you really want is significance, security, to be able to provide for a family. What you really want is a mission and the means to achieve it. And if you prayed that prayer instead of, God, where's my money at? If you prayed that prayer and gave yourself to God and that spirit, instead of putting money in the plate and expecting God to give back threefold or sevenfold or whatever the TV preacher said this week, then your life would change. So, there's what's happening on the surface that can be a distraction, and there's what's happening beneath that's real, okay? So, uh, that's how James gets us to think about our conflict. So, that's uh, the first part of James's letter, talking about the conflict, but James wants us to peel a layer back, look beneath that to see the real cause, and James is about to punch us between the eyes. Are you ready? This is the offensive part of the reading today, okay? in the next move uh, that he makes in this passage, starting in verse 4, he identifies for us the deeper disease that causes our conflict. He says, you adulterous people, adulterers, cheaters, no good duplicitous fools. That's what he's saying. Kind of hurt my feelings a little bit, but I'll keep going, okay? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. All right, we got to talk about this because you could easily get the impression that God hates the world. It's not what James is saying. One of the most famous passages in the whole Bible is what? John three sixteen. Just Tim Tebow's eye black, right? Like John, For God so hated the world? No, that's not it. For God so loved the world. He loves the world. And it's not that God has declared war against the whole world. What James is alluding to here is the very real fact that there are people and groups and organizations and causes and movements and ideologies and ideas that are directly opposed to the word and the will and the way of God. And some of them are overt about it, like in in terms of their hatred of God and their desire to lead people away from God. There are people who have made themselves enemies of God by their own volition. This is just a fact And so the question James is raising here is what does it say to God when we worship him on Sundays and then Monday through Saturday we cozy up to these ideas and groups and people and whatever that have themselves uh, declared war on the word, way, and will of God? Okay? He uh, alludes to this as uh, on par with adultery. At first it might seem extreme, but think about it on a more personal level. I try not to make a lot of enemies. Most of my enemies at this point in my life are Little League umpires, and that's on me, all right? But when you're in ministry, you tell people the truth. Sometimes you make other enemies too, and, and uh, there's one guy in particular that comes to mind who in a counseling session a few years ago, I told him, like, in no uncertain terms, you're going to hell. But he didn't like. I'm just, it comes to a real surprise. He didn't like that. You're going to hell because of the way you are putting your wife and children through hell. Like, I just... There was no other way to love him in that moment, but he didn't like it then. He still doesn't like it now. Years later, he'll still drop an email. I haven't seen him in person. He'll still drop an email once in a while and say, I'll never forget what you said to me. And he doesn't mean it in a good way, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And he says some other choice words. And so my wife knows very well about that situation and how intense it's been. And yet, if tomorrow morning she kissed me on the cheek on her way out the door and said, I love you, and then she left for work or whatever, then I... I left for work. On my way to work, I drive by a coffee shop and see her inside the coffee shop with that guy, like, or with any guy, really, but with with that guy especially, like, we're going to have to have a conversation about that because he has declared war on me. He has voiced his hatred of me, and it's clear in the way that he behaves himself. And so why is my wife, who says she loves me, having coffee with him? right without talking to me about it or whatever that's the sort of gut-wrenching analogy that James is is drawing up for us here he's like think about what god is supposed to do with us When he hears our praises and songs and worship and prayers on Sunday morning, and then we spend the rest of the week eating like the world does, drinking like the world does, dancing like the world dances, singing like the world sings, cursing like the world curses, having sex like the world has sex, relating and fighting and uh, uh, cursing one another like the world does, what is God supposed to do? when we come back to church the next Sunday acting like nothing happened. He says, you adulterous people. I know if I, was, uh, if I was in God's place, I know how I'd feel, and it's how most of y'all would feel. You'd want some kind of payback. You'd want the people who hurt you to feel pain too. But, but James surprises us. Just when you think James is over the top, fire and brimstone, he drops it on you. He says, but there is more grace. Did y'all catch it? but there is more grace. Even if you've been a serial adulterer for years and years, no matter how long you've sinned or how much, no matter how great your debt, there's more grace than you have debt. There's more grace than you have sinned. Never forget that a man who used to own and, and transport slaves on slave ships wrote Amazing Grace. Never forget. That song we just sang earlier came from the heart of a man who was deeply ashamed of what he had done, but totally liberated by the grace of God. And if you're deep in shame, just know that there's hope because there's always more grace. So the conflict is in our hearts. The cause is our friendship with the world, with the things, ideas, people, causes, etc., that oppose the way of God. And now James is going to tell us what the only cure is. This is uh, the last part of this passage, James 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Three things he says to do. Submit, resist, come near. That's the formula to cure your heart's disease. Now, to submit literally means to put under To submit yourself to God means to put yourself under God's authority, to not just believe in God, but to believe him. To not just know the Bible, but to live it and obey it. It is to live as a subject under God's kingdom and to seek to obey him more. Now, all of this is very hard for some of us. I know a lot of people who resist the notion of submission entirely. They won't submit to their spouse. They won't submit to their friends, their pastor, their parents, uh, their kids. Like uh, Try to call them out. They won't submit to that. Like it, There's just a rebellious spirit in some of us. And especially when somebody says, submit to God, there is a spirit in us that says, no thanks, I'm not really religious. I've seen the religious game. I've even played the religious game. I've been played by the religious game, and I'm done being manipulated. I'm my own man now, will say. I'm independent, I'm a free thinker, I'm strong. All right. I mean, just let me know, like, honestly, how that works uh, for you. Because uh, submitting yourself to God, is, much as you might think it's about religion, it has nothing to do with anything religious. Submitting yourself to God is not about God wanting to control you or belittle you or restrict you or keep you down, or diminish you, or take away your manhood, or take away your freedom. Like There is nothing about submitting to God that oppresses you. In fact, God is the only master you can or will ever serve who genuinely wants to lift you up, liberate you, and even resurrect your dead soul. He's the only master. Maybe you'll think, if you're really obstinate, you'll think, I don't need a master at all. I'll just opt out of having a master and be a free person. All right. I'll let you talk to God about it. Or even you can just talk, if you don't like God, talk to Bob Dylan about it. Because Bob will tell you, you got to serve somebody. And everybody does have to make a choice. And you can submit yourself to God and put yourself under God, or you will inevitably find yourself put under something that's under God already or something that's far beneath the dignity of your humanity, the image of God in you, and you will submit and surrender to something that is not worthy of your submission, and it will have you. And I don't want that for anyone here. I love you. God loves you way more than I do. And the call to submit yourself, to put yourself under God is really Uh, It is a a way of getting out from under the things you've put yourself under. Don't submit yourself to God. You will, if you live in Houston, Texas in 2022, you will probably end up submitting yourself to the perpetual rat race of gain. And you will chase and chase more and more. And no matter how much you get, you'll keep chasing until one day that race you've been running will prematurely put you in the grave. and you will be a slave. Maybe not just in this life, but in the next two. There is much at stake. You can submit yourself to God, or you will inevitably submit yourself to the validation and the appreciation and affection and approval and affirmation of others. If you go to God in in a humble spirit to seek your validation from God, you will find that nothing and no one can validate you as a man, as a woman, as a person like God can. And if you don't, you will find yourself scurrying from person to person, idea to idea, new thing to new thing, to find the validation that you seek. And making one mistake after another, you'll lose yourself. Because after years of projecting whatever veneer or or projection you want the world to see of you, you will finally decide to find the real you, pulling back the curtain you put around your heart, and you'll find there's nothing left. And I don't want that for you. James doesn't want that for us. Because God loves us that much. He says, Submit yourself to God. And then he says, resist the devil. Okay, resist the devil. Uh, Now, this is the second part of our battle plan or our cure uh, to this disease. To resist the devil is literally a military word. It's not a passive word like, oh, my gosh, get away. It It is a gird up your loins, put on your shield, and grab your sword, and go to war against this enemy that wants to, to have you. And he will have you. He might have you right now. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's more than likely you're under his influence already. You're submitting yourself to him. And he's putting in your mind all kinds of destructive thoughts. He's bringing into your relationships all kinds of conflict that you don't know what to do with. You feel lost and meaningless. You feel apathetic. You feel like you're living in a fog. That's what the enemy does when you don't resist him. He can be, in some ways, a formidable foe. First Peter uh, chapter 5, Simon Peter, Jesus' lead apostle, gave us the same warning. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm because you know the family of believers around the world's enduring the same kind of sufferings. Okay, so this is an enemy who wants to have you and doesn't wait for you to invite him in, he prowls around looking for vulnerabilities, and he knows your vulnerabilities. And if you don't fight him, he will come for you. Now, the good news is the minute you decide to name him as your enemy and to go to battle against him and resist him, he is a coward, He's a bully that once you punch back, he doesn't know what to do. That's how the Bible portrays Satan, this real dangerous looking monster until you stand up to him, and then he retreats, he flees, he runs. But he only runs when you recognize him as your sworn enemy and choose to resist him. Okay, so how do we find healing for our broken relationships? You submit yourself to God, you resist the devil, and finally, you come near to God as And God will come near to you. Now, that was weird to me when I reflected on that this week, because in a way, it sounds like God, if you don't read it right, it sounds a little bit like God's petty. It's almost like God's a middle schooler who's like, yeah, I'll come over to your house, but you got to come to mine first. Or (laughs) I'll come play with you, but you have to come play with me first. It's like, is that really how God is? That's not, obviously, not what James is saying. James is communicating a very important, one of the most important theological points that I think sets Christianity apart. Something we don't talk about enough. What James is saying is that although God loves you infinitely more than you know, although he wants nothing more maybe than to know you and be known by you and claim you and and have you home as a son, as a daughter again, he will not invade your heart against your will. He will not, like... Kick down the door. He will not show up with some heavenly SWAT team and a warrant, you know, with like your heart is Mar-a-Lago or something and just just like, beat down the door and let himself in. That's not his way. He is not like that with us. Before he seeks entry into your heart, he always seeks your consent. Because he cherishes your free will, because your free will is intrinsically bound to love. And what he wants is love, your love. And so he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 20, he said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and Eat with them, and they will eat with me. Here I am. He's at your heart's door knocking. But he will not kick that door in. Sometimes I have a friend, I'll have a friend that's struggling, and I'm just like, Jesus, just like do a Chuck Norris move or something. Like just just kick the door in, Jesus. Toss in a concussion grenade and just swat him. You know, it's like, come on, Jesus. If anybody can do it, you can do it. And then he'll believe, and he'll be, that's not Jesus' way. That's how we deal with conflict. But Jesus patiently waits and waits. He'll wait for years. Maybe for some of us, he has waited for years. He waited for 13 years for me, waiting, patiently knocking at my heart's door, waiting for my consent, because that's what love really looks like. And if you haven't opened your heart's door to him, he is waiting. He will not violate you. He's waiting for you to open and come near to him. How do you come near to God? God to heal your heart, to mend your broken relationships? How do you come near to him? Just like you would come near to anyone you're interested in, to anyone you love, to anyone you're pursuing. You set aside time for him. You talk to him, like intimately, you talk to him. You listen to him. You let him know how and why you value and appreciate him. You you, you reach out to him in times of need and when you don't need anything at all just to check in. You, you, You let him know you love him. Come near to God and he will come near to you. How many of you are in a relationship right now that is broken by conflict? If I asked for a show of hands, if we were being honest, every hand would go up. Ironically enough, when preachers ask for shows of hands at church, we're not always honest at church. The one place you would think we would be (laughs) honest. But all of us struggle in our relationships. And these fragmented, broken, conflicted relationships have the power to sink us, to destroy us, and possess us. You know it. Because some days it's all you think about. There is hope. There's a way to heal. The first thing is knowing that it's not about the skirmish on the surface. It's really about a deeper brokenness in your own heart that you're bringing to that skirmish. That's what you want to address. The way that you do it is submitting yourself to God. Put yourself under his authority. Find your validation in him alone. Resist the devil and all of his tactics. Call him out as your sworn enemy and fight back with your sword instead of just defending with your shield. The sword is the word of God, by the way. And then come near to God. Come near to him. Trust him. Open your heart's door to him, and he will come near to you, surround you, protect you, and heal your broken heart, which I'll pray with me. Lord, we pray for healing right now. I pray for for folks like me in this room and online and at Timber Grove who are obstinate and stubborn, just like I was and still am sometimes. And just looking to be our own master. Lord, help us to see that when we try to be our own master, it's, we become the least benevolent, least worthy, most awful masters over ourselves. Lord, we beat ourselves up with shame and regret all the time. And we succumb to all kinds of desires and hedonism, Lord, that just drive us further into the darkness. Lord, I pray for liberation for the one in this room or online or at Timber Grove, the one sitting here who has said no to you for years or ignored the knock of the door. I pray there will be breakthrough right now, that a heart would open up to you right now because it's time for healing to come. It's time for relationships to be mended. It's time for hearts to be made whole again. Lord, that's our prayer. Come, would you come into our hearts? Would you give us the courage to open up? In Jesus' name, amen.